Sweetheart, we got some dancing to do. Hello and welcome to Cage Fighting. It is a musical episode today. I'm Svai Dry, Musicast 3, and so Matt Guy here to take the reins. It's Jew Hall here coming in your ears. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Evening all, it's Andy Gillard here. Hope you're keeping well right now. Hang on, hang on. Well, yet again, I think we should clarify what that means. The, whole well, Ch- the Chorley FM thing, because I don't think Phoenix Knight's permeated uh, America, did he? Sadly. Well, you know, speaking, it must be nice for once to come second, Stu. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> there we go. Uh, as I say, it's um, it's a Musicast episode this week, hence the reason why I'm taking the reins and asking the same silly and serious questions that the world needs answering, but about music instead of film or TV. How are we anyway, gents? Obviously, the nights are drawing in a little bit now. I said uh, in, in the green room with Andy that... Um, it feels like out of nowhere, someone's flicked a switch and it's just gone dark and cold, like out of nowhere, in really early in the day. Yeah. Very much so. I I, um, I even made a crumble today because it's proper <laughs> autumn weather. It was a crumble with my own pears as well off the tree. Wow. Yeah, wow. I know. But yeah, proper autumn, autumn uh, autumnal food, I think, is uh, the, the cause for the day now. You were wearing a tweed jacket doing this, weren't you, with skilling jeans on as well? No, shorts till November, Stu, that's the rule. You can't be making making crumble from your own pear tree is <laughs> the <laughs> most sustainable kind of bollocks you can possibly imagine. I mean, weirdly enough, it didn't seem that bad this morning because I was up after the good old 12-point session last night and I, I, I expected it to be cold and I was kind of hoping for it to kind of wake me up a little bit and when I got up and it was still very much short weather, I didn't even have a coat on. Maybe that, that was the beer as well, but <laughs> there has been times where holidays are coming. Has been like jumping around my head. I don't know. Even for me, it's too early yet. We need to get after uh, after Remembrance Sunday. Then it's all full steam ahead. But we've got a couple of months yet to go. I did the autumn staples today, and I was dragged to the fruit farm up the road, and I had to go pick a pumpkin out of a pumpkin patch. <laughs> uh, and then I made soup, not my own soup. So it's um, it's full steam ahead with the hipster mid thirties activities today. <laughs> yeah, hundred percent, isn't it? And I'm all for it. Um, so we'll get started with the news then. So um, the first item um, I want to talk about is Ian Brown, obviously a lead singer of uh, the Stone Roses, who. Went on tour over the, over the last few weeks. I think it's wrapping up now, um, and caused controversy because instead of taking a band with him, he sang basically karaoke style to a backing track, and it caused a lot of fury, I guess, um, amongst the fan base and Twitter, uh, unsurprisingly. But what say you? Um, for, for an artist that has been predominantly known for being in a live band backing track. On tour, it's got to be a bit of a kick in the knackers for the support, you know, the the, the traveling um, traveling fans. What do you think, Stu? Yeah, I, I actually I agree. It's it's not like 
when Robbie Williams left Take That and he went his own way doing his own thing, you expect a backing track with that kind of stuff. But he went the other way. He had like he had the big band like the swing when you win an album and all that. So he had the full experience for them kind of things. Mm-hmm. For pop songs, you you kind of it's the done thing to do, me, but not in fucking Brown. I mean, come on. I mean, when, when I saw, I thought it was a joke at first. I thought, oh, is he doing some kind of little jape? And then there's going to be people behind a curtain or something. But now he's literally turned up. He might have been. He might as well have done it in a pub. It just seems, unless that was on the, on specifically on the ticket before it was sold, saying Ian Brown on his own <laughs> without a band. I can I can sympathise with the fans being quite pissed off with it because that's exactly it. when it's like me if I went to go and see Noel Gallagher and he was singing to a backing track without playing any instruments himself or any band behind him. You think that's not the same as it? It's just, mm. yeah, it just seems a bit cheap. I, I don't know why you do it. It, it. it doesn't make any sense, really. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree, full stop. I mean, um, obviously you two are both really, really into um, Oasis and um, Liam Gallagher came out calling um, Ian Brown the king, saying Ian Brown and Sid, Sid Vicious, same thing, long live punk. Um, I mean, singing to a backing track has got to be the the most <laughs> least punk thing around, surely. But I mean, Andy, from your point of view, where where do you lie on this? And from a, Stone Roses are very much an impact in time band, and they had like a renaissance amongst like uh, Adidas wearing youth of today, almost. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. all part of that kind of renaissance, but. Um, where, where, what do you stand on this, and what are your thoughts on the Stone Roses in general? I like the Stone Roses. I mean, that first album is incredible. It's one of the best debut albums of any British rock band that's ever been. It's fantastic. But as a solo artist, Ian Brown can do one, to be perfectly honest. He hasn't done anywhere near enough for me to want to see him, let alone see him sing karaoke. Unless he was doing it for like eight quid a ticket in the small room at the back of the uh, the little Civic in Wolverhampton, I don't want to see that. That's just yeah. crap. That is that just screams to me that I just need some money, so I'm going to try and get it out of all these fucking idiots who know my back catalogue, and they'll just feed off the fact that it's Ian Brown. It'll be his ego and his personality precedes him, so people will pay. And I, I know I'm guilty of it when I've. You know, I've been to see bands like I saw BDI, uh, Liam Gallagher's much less successful band when he left Oasis. 25 quid a ticket. Granted, it was a proper band. It was absolute dog shit. The albums that they'd released before seeing them were crap anyway. So I don't know why. Well, I I do know why. It's because it was Liam Gallagher. Mm -hmm. But that's not enough, really, especially in this day and age, you know, Everyone's looking after the pennies at the moment, and understandably so. And I believe it was £21 or something ridiculous <laughs> for that. I, I just found that really, really insulting to the fans to think that you can get away with doing something like that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely well said. Um, so moving on then, as of recording, um, the Arctic Monkeys uh, are touring the UK uh, ahead of their new album, uh, it's called Car on the Roof or something like, of the car or something like that. Um, and I, I noticed, um, well, they're, a they're supporting with the Hives, which makes me want to go. I, I, as a quick sidebar, I don't know if you've heard any of the new Arctic Monkeys stuff. It sounds very much like 
the same stuff as Tranquility, Base Hotel and Casino, whatever it was, which was dog shit. Mm. Um, well, the hives are the hives. They're amazing. Everybody should go out their way to see them. But what I've noticed is there's no Birmingham date at all. You've got London, Manchester, the big hitters, but, but nothing in Birmingham, not even Coventry, not even like the Rico or anything like that. Um, so should bands or major bands of that size, bear in mind they're playing venues like Old Trafford, so they're not playing arenas, they're playing stadiums. Um, should they play every major area or should fans be expected to travel when it comes to seeing their favourite bands andy i thought it's a really interesting question when you put this in the uh, the running order because if you look at america for example people have to travel and they will travel across states they, they travel further than like the country of the united kingdom to go and see their bands and it's it's no big deal at all they seem to accept that that's just their way of life I mean, there's that saying that, what is it, Americans think 100 years is old and the Brits think that 100 miles is far. Mm. And and that's kind of how it feels. Because Manchester's, what, 60-odd miles. I saw the Arctic Monkeys, funnily enough, at Old Trafford Cricket Ground way back when. But it does feel like it's a bit of a trek to get up to Manchester. It's not just the case of just hopping in the car for half an hour and then you're there. It, it feels like it's a full day experience. Mm. I think as long as you're getting a full day experience out of it, I don't really mind them saying we're not doing Birmingham. But if it's a case of we're going to do an hour show and the hives will be on for an hour before us, I'd be a little bit peeved that I've had to travel, you know, maybe two, three hours to, to see a band just for them to do less than half of my travel time. Yeah. I mean, Stu, you're used to going the length and breadth of the country following Wolves and being disappointed in in, in every postcode <laughs> in this fair nation. So does travel mean the same to you if if Aqua and the Venga boys had you know a, a gig on, but it was in Yeovil? Would you be fine to go? I think it's very different with, with music, ain't it? Because it's, Football's a strange existence anyway. You either get it or you don't get it. <laughs> and there's no trying to convince normal people that going to places like Palace away on a Tuesday night in <laughs> in October <laughs> is a good idea. No one will understand that. Um, Music-wise, if you said the same thing to them about that, you'd, you'd be looked at maybe even more judgmentally. I think it's a very English-British thing this is because... I think because we are so much so much smaller than every other major country, we have major cities very close to each other, relatively speaking, but we demand that they come to us. <laughs> and if they, they do not come to us, then they can fuck off. And that seems to very much be the, the case. I mean, for, I don't get it from their point of view why they would do that anyway. You want to tick off the places, don't you? You want to do the... Manchester or Liverpool, you want to do the, the North East, you want to do London, a couple of places down there. Maybe if you're being adventurous, go to Plymouth um, or Bristol or where, Cardiff. Then you've got the Midlands. It's not even Wolverhampton, you're Birmingham, Leicester, Coventry, Nottingham even. But to not do any of that part of the country just seems a bit of a piss take, really. It doesn't make any sense. Like, mm. You're just leaving money on the table for yourselves. And unless there's a logistical reason why not, then I don't get it. 
Mm, it was a strange one. I mean, maybe they'll, they'll announce a couple more dates. I don't know. But I, when I saw it at the time, um, and, you know, like Andy said, you, the cost of living is shot up, mortgages, energy, everything. So every every financial hardship, you know, or what is a luxury going to a gig and then adding fuel and a hotel. Me and Sam went to see Canterbats in Nottingham um, early uh, in September. And even just going to Nottingham felt like a right ball, like to go to a gig. Um, and that's like literally up the road. <laughs> so it's just, it's just strange how these things work. Um, and finally for news, FIFA 23 was released uh, earlier last week with a very diverse soundtrack. Um, and FIFA are kind of going for this thing where it's, they're unearthing new artists and it's very much a worldwide soundtrack these days. Um, but with that goes the mantra that you don't really know anything that you're listening to on these games. So I want to ask you, what was the last great FIFA soundtrack, Stu? I mean, ever since you, you were able to play Spotify through <laughs> the background anyway, mm-hmm. um, I've, that's what I've done in the ones that I've played because of all this absolute rubbish that's on at the minute. <laughs> I mean, it, I know they're going for the... Yes, brother, and then all the other kind of the Adidas, the Adidas wearing Ute as you described them, um, and that's obviously not us. But it's gone so far from the glory days of like Song Two being on FIFA ninety eight, and you go and it was like and Kasabian in like twenty FIFA twelve, or I think it was, and things like that. You go from there to what we are now, and you've literally just completely changed. Music genre, it's mad. Mm. So the, the, for me, it's it's when you had things like Clubfoot and, and all that kind of stuff funny, because that's my kind of, and that's what we kind of, we grew up with, with Soccer AM soundtrack being there. And now the Soccer AM soundtrack went for a while. It went to this kind of hip hoppy, whatever this nonsense is. Um, well, it's not even nonsense because it's not hip hop in the, the true term. I don't even know what it is. It's noise. Mm. And that's the most <laughs> old man thing to say anyway about well, music, but... Yeah, there, there is definitely a, a, a chance of us going to old man shouts at cloud territory here. But Andy, from your point of view, obviously FIFA adapts with the times and, and, and popular music genre. And, you know, there was a time, especially in the early to mid 2000s, when indie rock music was was popular music. It was pop. Um, mm-hmm. And we've moved away from that for, in a FIFA sense. Can you remember a, a particular soundtrack or, or, or FIFA kind of few songs that really come to mind for you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I went through Google. I thought I'd have a look at each year for like the last 20 odd years and see which ones really stand out to me. 13, which was the one with Clubfoot by mm. Kasabian on. Like that was quite high up there because that did have some indie riffic. I was saying that they were closer to like your Kasabian, your more Brit poppy kind of sounds. But the one that really stood out to me is FIFA 09. Um, so you've got Gasoline by the Airborne Toxic Event. Like a band who came and went, but that song absolutely fucking kicks it. It's really cool. I'm not going to teach your boyfriend how to dance with you by the Black Kids, which is another really good electro God, indie song. Like so would I until I saw it on this list, and I've been listening to it like every other day since. <laughs> it's fantastic. Uh, you've got CCS are on there. Damien Marley was on there. Uh, Duffy with Mercy, which not really my genre, but mm, it was a very popular enough. song. Uh, Foles, Hot Chip, 
Junkie XL. Uh, you had Fast Fuse by Kasabian on there as well, and Runaway by Ladytron. It had a really good re- um, soundtrack to this one. So this one for me, FIFA 9, was the one that really stood head and shoulders above the rest. Oh, yeah, that, that is great. I, I'd gone a little further back to 2004 as as the one that really stood out for me because you had... Um... You had uh, We Used to Be Friends by the Dandy Warhols. You had Rhythm Bandits Junior Senior. You had LSF by Kasabian. Train by Goldfrap. Uh, Red Morning Light by Kings of Leon. Um, Fool's Gold was on there by the Stone Roses. Uh, Lost Profits was on there. We'll just skip past that. Um, Mixomatosis was on there by Radiohead. Um, and you had A Town Called Malice was on there. Jerk It Out by the Caesars was on there. It was just... There were some real tunes on that one as well, but mm. I think that might be my next thing on my next few com- uh, commutes into work. Much make my way through the FIFA soundtracks, I think. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it does sound good. Excellent. So moving on then to a little hot take corner action. Um, Woodstock 99, the Netflix documentary. Uh, I know maybe HBO or someone else did one not that long ago, but specifically related to the Woodstock 99 Netflix documentary. Um Woodstock 99 was obviously widely condemned due to organisational issues in that documentary, talking about how the patrons that went were treated really poorly, the facilities were a shambles, and they were just treated as customers and cattle rather than people and experience. But there was very little criticism actually about the patrons and them taking any responsibility for their actions in the documentary themselves. We've had over in the last 24 hours um, uh, a really awful event in Indonesia in, in regards to football, and there's obviously police issues are, that are afoot there. Um, and in the past, we've had things like Hillsborough and and things where certain quarters will point fingers at the paying customers for their involvement as well as organisational issues. So, what say you? Taking it back to Woodstock '99. How did you feel about that, Stu, from your point of view? Should more fingers have been pointed at the actual people there that were causing the riots and the chaos and the sexual assaults and everything else? Or is the organisational thing the bigger issue? I mean, the rape stuff was absolutely outrageous. I don't know even how they could even try to pin that on, oh, because they were pissed off. That's just abhorrence. There's there's, There's nothing that could even excuse that. You can excuse them getting pissed off, yeah, fine. You can excuse them being really hot and not having proper toilets. That's going to make you mad. Um, but you could just see that it was a proper like mob mentality. And it turned from, oh, yeah, let's make a bit of protest to let's absolutely destroy everything in sight. And one, once it crossed that threshold, then it's completely on them. Mm. Being, an, being annoyed and lashing out, yeah, fine. That's understandable to a point, but to completely wreck the place, nah, that's all on them. That's all. That's mob mentality. And if there was cameras like there is now, they'd all be arrested, wouldn't they? So, like that idiot that cha- chained himself to the post at Everton last season, he's doing time now <laughs> for a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. And rightly so, he invaded the pitch. It he, he ruined everyone's day, made himself a meme, and now he's in jail for two weeks. What did it achieve? Nothing. <laughs> so. From that point of view, you can say, okay, yeah, he's been forced to do it, but his actions went so far the other way that now he's suffering for it, and rightly so. And that's exactly, for me, that's what the same with the Woodstock thing was. And 
other things. There's a point where people are to blame for pissing you off, but there's also a line. And you cross mm. that line, you're on your own. Yeah. No, no, I get where you're coming from. So, Andy, from, from your point of view, obviously, the documentary um, itself, mainly because it was probably a lot easier to get interviews with the organisers and actually structure this whole documentary than just speak to the actual festival goers themselves. You know, there's probably more, because it's behind the curtain, makes it a bit more interesting, but then that's how you point the finger of blame, I guess, to structure that documentary itself. Where Where do you lie with this and, you know... Is this just par for the course? It, it, it's how it's done to create an entertaining documentary, or should there have been more of a be a bit more neutral in relation to who was to blame for what? That they should be neutral on it because there there is no absolute right answer is the to it. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of grey areas. There's no black and white in this. No one's wholly right. No one's wholly wrong. That there's a lot of blame to go around for what happened. Um, does this sort of, I remember I read this book about, it was about philosophy in relation to uh, Grant Morrison's run on the Batman comic book. And it was talking about, should Batman kill the Joker? Which is obviously, it's an age old question. Is it the right thing to kill a bad person to stop them from killing others? And the answer that I sort of resonated with most is that no, you shouldn't kill Joker in that instance, because the only thing you have any control over is your own actions. So to blame the faceless, nameless organisers completely strips the people away from their own actions. They, they're they the ones who decided to rape and do these just heinous acts of violence against people. So they're the ones who really should hold the responsibility for their actions. Yeah, the organisers fucked up, but them fucking up doesn't mean that you get to sexually assault someone or you know almost murder someone to to that extent you have to take responsibility for your own actions and it feels like that that documentary was stripping those people of their agency they Mm. were just a bunch of shitheads and they deserve to have the book thrown at them for what they did yeah no i agree well said as well i think it did a it did a pretty good job the documentary of kind of condemning the like the assaults on women in terms of everybody knew it was wrong but then in the next breath it would say well you know everybody was dehydrated everybody was this everybody was that it just it just struck a chord with me a little bit that i didn't i didn't feel perfectly comfortable with but hey ho one of those things so uh andy have we had any listener questions for musicast we have we've had a few in um, we've got one from Mr. Dean Marston. I think this might be the first time Dino has got in contact with us. Um, he, he's got two questions. What is your guilty pleasure song, Matt? Ooh. Um, it, well, before Jota left Wolves, it would have been Voulez Vu by ABBA. That was on all the time <laughs> in my car, like literally all the time. Um, I really like disco. So Ring My Bell has been on quite a lot recently. Um, nice. I don't know if you, I don't know if you listened to Foley's pod this week, um, but there's a reason why he's done he's done a cover of Mister In Your House, um, so it's it's been like stuck in my head. So I'd say anything disco related for me. Cool, Stu, guilty pleasures. I mean, you have no shame, so I can't imagine there's there's much you you feel guilty about. Well, from from the normal way of guilty pleasures, I mean that's what I listen to anyway. <laughs> so <laughs> you can't say things like the hamster song and all the usual bollocks and. Um, 
I suppose the um, Gary Glitter Christmas song is not great, really, um, <laughs> in the circumstances. But it's, again, it's a great song. And I know he does say, I like to hear the children sing as one of the lyrics. And I thought, oh, you'll bet you do, mate. But <laughs> probably that for the, for the, the, right, the wrong reasons. Um, because I, like you said, I have no shame. I mean, that's that's properly guilty, isn't it? I mean, that's <laughs> that's guilty in a court of law. <laughs> uh, Dean also wanted to know if you could meet any past or present musical artist for a day. Who would it be, and why? Stu, who would you like to hang out with for a day? I mean, I kind of ruined that earlier. Noel Gallagher, <laughs> just because <laughs> I think. He, you could see you could talk to him a bit more than just music. You got mm. the football as well, and if you want to go a bit, a bit lovely as well, <laughs> a bit of uh, a bit of nuisance politics thrown in, yeah, a bit of that as well. But yeah, uh, he's just one, one of them, one of them idols who who probably more than likely is an arsehole, like every, like I assume everyone is. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think it'd be a really interesting time. Mm. See, I think I'd go for the opposite, and I'd go for Liam. Mm. Just go, I want to go on the session with Liam Gallagher. It'd be fucking nice. But you'd, you'd die, though, wouldn't you? That, this is the of problem. Of course, I would. Of course, I would. Uh, Matt, what have you got to say? Um, I, I, this is going to be a, a proper shot in the dark here, but I think it'd be more because of like I know my dad would lose his shit, but I'd I'd like to meet Bob Marley of all people. <laughs> okay, right, because yeah. of his because of his kind of. Uh, um, Way, his way of life and the way that he lived and what he meant to a lot of people and his political views. And I just think, get a fatty bum batty on the go, <laughs> sit with Bob Marley and just have a, you know, get get me a, get me a box of uh, special muffins and we'll um, just, have a, just have a class time. I think it'd be brilliant. Yeah, that sounds great. Uh, Richard Hobbs wants to know, what is your favourite movie OST? Matt, official soundtrack. Yeah, I think... Um, I mean, I've I own I own a few. Um, I, Forrest Gump was always my favourite because it's it really is just a, a history of Americana. But I'd probably go Train Spotting is the one I put on the most when I'm listening to a vinyl of a, mm. like a, of a soundtrack. Yeah, Train Spotting's got a few absolute corkers on there. Cool, Stu. I mean, I, I'm sure we've actually answered the, this question on the podcast a couple of years ago. Um, I'm I'm drawn to ones that I have actually bought in the past. Um, for uh, for a long time, it would have been Kevin and Perry go large, <laughs> um, and similar era. Uh, the Full Monty soundtrack is great, um, but mm. I, th- I, I it's kind of cheating. I know, but Hamilton can't be beaten. It, it is great. Yeah, I mean for the for a soundtrack where it's actually from the people in it yeah it is excellent which is why like south park bigger longer uncut yeah. movie that would be quite high for me on my listen count i've listened to that so many times it's ridiculous i think my favorite soundtrack currently is probably baby driver that just seems to like run the gamut of year on year just so many different genre of song which he pulls from it's excellent it's really really good i just think edgar wright has got an ear for that kind of thing and it mm-hmm. He really demonstrates it on that film more than any other personally. I mean, I know it's not a film, but and, and we talked about it at the time. But probably the most played soundtrack of anything is is the Peacemaker one from last yeah. year. It's so good, isn't it? 
Yeah, I think uh, James Gunn had been updating that on Spotify, so just put it on and and you just go away with it because it's fucking brilliant. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Andrew Wright has tweeted us. He wants to know what lyric have you misheard, misinterpreted in a song, only to find out the actual lyric is something else entirely. So misheard lyrics, Matt? Um, I swear to God they turned this into an advert years ago but more than a feeling by journey i think it mm. was i swear to god it, at one point i thought it was bought it on ebay <laughs> um and then you know the song i was i was told this when i was young so it wasn't i thought it was i was told it i trusted the people around me but you know that song um uh was it talking about my is it my girl or was it my guy my Girl by The Temptations. Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. I always thought it was Matt Guy. <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was told it was... That we, need to, told it was <laughs> we need to um, get that made up as a trailer. Yes, yeah, we do. Um, I always was told it was that. So for the longest time, I believed that yeah. it was. So there's that trend on TikTok at the moment where someone's rapping along to um, MC Hammer, Can't Touch This, the, which is the One Thing Challenge. We need to get you... Singing my girl, but changed it to Matt Guy instead. <laughs> uh, Stu, misheard, misinterpreted lyrics or songs. There was, there was one. Um, there was a Slade song that they used to promote um, Bond films on ITV years and years ago, and it had um, you. You then watches Bond. It was kind of one of them, one of them kind of where they they mock like mirror it and put it in, and then. Mm. But because I remember that so vividly, every time I heard that song, those songs come up, I was waiting for that that lyric to come out. <laughs> and obviously, it's not; it's obviously just changed for the advert. But still, I'll, I'll have to find the advert out later. But it, it was it was ITV modifying Slade songs. <laughs> that in, sounds in, excellent. Inserting words to them. Yeah, we'll have to find that on YouTube. My answer is. It's a song that I completely misinterpreted. Uh, misinterpreted. Um, Sexy Sadie by the Beatles. It sounds like it's a song about the dissolution of a relationship with this woman. But actually, it's about the Beatles' relationship with the Maharishi, how he ripped them off. And like it completely ruined the song for me because it was mm. this kind of like quite a heart-wrenching song. And then it turned out to be something completely different. And I never felt the same about the song after finding out what, what it was actually about. So that, yeah. that's my answer. I had that with um, the Say It Ain't So by Weezer because mm. um, I like just, I never really listened to the lyrics. I never really thought much about it. I just thought it was like just Weezer and they're good. They're a good fun band, aren't they? And then it's about like his relationship with his alcoholic dad. And I was like, Oh no, this is like, this, <laughs> this is no longer like a nice fun song anymore. Not that it wasn't a fun song to begin with because it's quite slow and dreary in parts, but because it's Weezer, you just assume that, like it's going to be a fun song, and yeah. I think you think about that. Like I think you think that about Weezer anyway. But then you hear them talk about how much they hate the Buddy Holly video, or he hates the Buddy Holly video, and he hates that they're not taken seriously as a band. And I'm like, oh no, like th- mm. don't don't be like this. Please stick to what I think you are. Yeah, it'd, it'd be like hearing that Bowling for Soup were like really dour and miserable, wouldn't it? Yeah, exactly. Really disappointing. 
Uh, that's all the questions then thank you very much for sending those in obviously make sure you've got us on twitter at cage fighting pod to send us any future questions splendid thank you very much so i've got three questions for you here the creme de la creme of music questions so the first question i have is for you to tell me the best song that you didn't know until you found out obviously uh was a cover stew Dancing in the moonlight. Talk to me. When did what were you? When did you feel, or what did you feel when you found out? I was gutted. <laughs> I I know Top Loader are a bit of a farce and um, a bit annoying. And I did watch. Um, we went to see them once at the Academy in Birmingham, and they they played Dancing in the Moonlight three times in the what? same set, <laughs> beginning, middle, and end. Um. But yeah, man, and I, I absolutely love that song. I again, I'm not saying anything about my own music taste because it's absolutely everywhere, and I really don't care. Um, but at the time, it was it was one of them earworms that you get. I mean, obviously, I bought the single because we—that's what you did back then. Um, but I remember playing it. I think, I, and I was listening to it, and my nan heard it, and she went, "Oh, that's who's that boy?" Top loader. I said, "Oh, that's not original." I went, yes, it is. <laughs> and what do you mean? I haven't heard this before. Well, it's not an original song; it's a cover. It's obviously been quite mad at the time, and look, it was very hard to look these things up. And I'm, I'm, it was in an article in it. <clears throat> it was in an article in, in NME. I think a, a few weeks later, because obviously they took the piss out of them, um, and I, I had to concede defeat <laughs> to my own nan that I was wrong. And I was, I, I was, I felt quite sad, really. So it, and then when it was covered last year by someone else, my instant thing was, they can't cover Top Loader. <laughs> Even though it's a cover of a, a, a cover. But yeah, so that, that was, it might not be the best, but it's the best for me. Excellent, excellent. Andy, what about yourself? I, I've got a few honourable mentions and stuff, but I don't want to steal your thunder. I, I doubt I will, but just in case, I'll give you my answer and then we'll can go over the others. My answer is Johnny Cash Hurt. Mm-hmm. Because that was the song that sort of defined <laughs> it defined the end of Johnny Cash as a performer. He was very much approaching his deathbed, sadly, you know, it, it was really sad to hear this song and and the emotion in his voice, it felt like it was genuine and heartfelt and sort of sadly beautiful. And then to find out it was a cover of a Nine Inch Nail song about heroin withdrawal symptoms. And it it felt like it took something away from it. A bit like mm. the misinterpreted lyrics, things that I'd mentioned with Sexy Sadie. But I think by this point in my life, I'd come to the realisation that what a song means to you is what a song means. Mm. It, it might be written something else by the actual artist, but how you embrace it is what it means to you. And that's the most important thing. Um, it, it did like, like it was a bit shit. The fact that it was nine inch nails and the original sucks a little bit. It is yeah. not a great original song, but Johnny Cash's version is hauntingly beautiful. Yeah, it really is. Um, I remember when I realized that that was a nine inch nails song and I was like, Oh wow. Like it, it, I remember when um, Sinead O'Connor, um, took 
Prince is nothing compared to you, which isn't my answer. Um, I, and then, but people, but Prince got really pissy and basically got annoyed that Sinead, that it's Sinead O'Connor's song. It's not Prince's song anymore. Mm. He's she took it from him, and it's her song, not his. Um, and that's how I really felt about um, Johnny Cash and and her because it's made for him, even though he never like it, it's perfectly right for him, and it's just fell into his hands perfectly. But um, I'll give you my answer, then we'll go back to your um, honourable mentions. Um, it's not the greatest song in the world, but it just surprised me. It came, completely came out of the blue, and it's Hanging on the Telephone by Blondie. I had no idea that that was a cover, and it was only mm. it was only wrote kind of two years prior um, for, by a band called... Oh, what are they called? Um, there were another band. It was The Nerves, and... They didn't have any success of it. Blondie picked it up, and um, the rest is history. Um, it was on Parallel Lines, which is kind of their their breakthrough third album. Um, and it's one of those that you just think of it, it was stolen, and everybody thinks of it as a Blondie song and, and nothing else. Um, and it's just funny that these things... I, I saw a TikTok the other day, which was like songs that you had no idea were by other artists, and they're like huge songs that... Um, like pop songs that were like 10 years ago that were probably ahead of its time at the time. And then they were picked up by some no talent pop idol wanker like years later <laughs> and then make a, make a, make a living out of it themselves. But there you go. So what... when you think of like soft sell, the mm-hmm. um, oh, fuck, tainted love. Yeah. I mean, which was also a really good cover by Marilyn Manson as well. Mm. I know he's very questionable, but it's a good song regardless. Um, he very much took what was an okay song, and Mark, is it Mark Ormond from Soft Cell? I always get it mixed up. The mm. guys from that era, he made it his own and made a really good song. And when you listen to the original, you think actually, if that was released in the seventies or early eighties, that probably would have hit them at the market completely differently to the late sixties. Yeah. You know what? Uh, but, I I actually prefer the Marilyn Manson version. It's really good. It's very rare that you get a cover song where they completely change it and make it their own. And I think that is the success of a good cover song. When it's just a cover and it's exactly the same as the original, what's the point? But Marilyn Manson completely changed how that song he's listened to. It made it sort of dirty and dirgy and dark. And it doesn't feel like that kind of song when you listen to any other version of it. It's a bit like um, Valerie. Hey, that's a complete mm. the, the one that everyone knows is not the the version that the, the original is very different to the yeah. new, the uh, the druggy version. That always gets me. I always feel like a certain element of annoyance that the Zootons never got their due desserts for for Valerie. Like no one knows it's Valerie. They just know it's Amy Winehouse, don't they? Yeah. They got paid for it though, so well, they got, <laughs> small they mercies, made, I suppose. They would have got yeah. made bank for it, absolutely. Yeah. So, what, what were some of your honourable mentions then, uh, Andy, for this? Uh, my, I had a cheating answer, which was going to be the Verve bit of Sweet Symphony. It's obviously it's a cover of the Stones. Um, the last time the music is, but the lyrics obviously are the Verve's own. Um, these are ones that I only found out this week are covers. So this is why I've got them on here. In third place, 1987, George Harrison got my mind set on you. That was a cover of a James Ray song, which I had no idea. Uh, the Clash, 1979, I Fought the Law and the Law Won, the cover of the crickets from 60s again. And Johnny Cash, Ring of Fire. 
that was actually a cover of an Anita Carter song. Um, Anita Carter is Johnny Cash's sister-in-law, and the song was actually written by June Carter Cash. Hmm. There you and, go. And I've got one for the most overrated cover song, Jeff Beck, Hallelujah. It's fucking shit. <laughs> Awful song. Stu looks like he's about to put his put his head through the screen. I can't tell if he's, <laughs> if he's annoyed by that one. No, um, he's, he's just defacing the good name of Alexander Burke there. He deliberately... <laughs> <laughs> I'm, sh- I'm sure he didn't do it intentionally. Sure, I'm sure he apologizes. Um, so, question number two then: the best one-worded single released by a one-worded artist, i.e., "Kiss" by Prince. Because I put "Tragedy" by ABBA in the original um, notes for this, then realized it wasn't ABBA, which shocked me to my core. It's the Bee Gees, isn't it? It was the Bee Gees. Yeah, yeah. But I always thought oh, it was ABBA. We could have had steps. I could have had steps, actually. That's yeah. true. Probably the right answer, uh, as far as Stu's concerned. But Stu, what's mm. your favourite uh, one-worded single by a one-worded artist? Tragedy by Steps. <laughs> 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 no, that was that was the first one that came into my head. Um, obviously, um, but yeah, this was remarkably difficult because <laughs> uh, there was like ones that I looked at. And I thought that doesn't count. I think that I I got um, Paradise by Coldplay, but whatever. Um, Coldplay being one one word, hmm. being that, and like Meatloaf <laughs> being two words, and that, <laughs> the actual Meatloaf item is one word. Which, that annoyed hmm. me. Um, but thinking about it properly, it's whatever Oasis, and that song, <laughs> the only one that avoided all albums and it was the only one that was a single on it all all by itself and i've got all three different versions of that i've got the the uk the japanese and the american version and that single because mm-hmm. there was different b-sides on them weren't they that's how they used to do it so and that that music video was the first time i've seen anyone eat french fries like that where he just eats <laughs> eats them like a bear <laughs> and for <laughs> Even now, when there's a few left over, when we get to Mackey's or whatever, I'll still eat it like that. <laughs> In the late 90s, nothing changes over 20 years ago. But I, it's a very, it's not overrated anymore because people bring it up all the time. But I, I love that song more than almost any other Oasis song, for whatever Interesting. reason. Interesting. Mm, it is a belter. Andy, what about yourself? Your favourite or one-worded uh, single by a one-worded artist? I uh, see. I-, I was so tempted to try and give a cheating answer. I was going to go with Genesis, but I know it's really Peter Gabriel for uh, Sledgehammer. <laughs> yeah, or yes, I was going to yes. go with uh, Jolene for Dolly, because everyone knows who Dolly is. You don't need to say yeah. Parson, but uh, but no, my answer. I've also gone for an Oasis song because I'm a basic bitch like that as well. Uh, mine's Songbird though. The Liam Gallagher penned song from one of their later albums. Um, Before this point, Liam Gallagher was only the the lead singer in the band. He wasn't allowed to touch a guitar. He wasn't allowed really to write anything. He he wrote one B-side and he wrote Little James on Standing on the Shoulders of Giants, which is one of the worst songs I've ever heard on one of the worst albums I've ever heard. And I say that as a massive Oasis fan. It's just fucking awful. I'm not going to argue. 
it's it, like it's indefensible, isn't it? It's <laughs> awful. Uh, but then he did this songbird, and it's just this really nice little ditty of it's just a, someone on drums and a, a acoustic guitar and Liam singing. And it's so melodic and sweet and beautiful and not what you expect from Liam Gallagher at all. It's a lovely little song. And that was the first song that jumped into my head. Um, I did have an honourable mention for Beetlebum by Blur, which is this. As I said to you before we started recording, Matt, I've had this bass in my stuck in my head for the last couple mm. of days. And it's been the Beetlebum soundtrack. Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. Beast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just been stuck in my head. And... Another absolute toe tapper, Usher. Yeah. <laughs> well, I wasn't expecting that one. Mm. Um, so for me, there was there was a couple really. I I didn't want to go Blondie for both answers. So one of my honourable mentions was Atomic by Blondie when they started to bring in kind of a bit more synth and a bit of disco sound into um, into it. And and Atomic's great, and it it, it had like a a couple of different remixes that that got pushed out later into um, later down the years as well. That was really good. Um, Strutter by Kiss. Uh, I really like as well. It's not as, it's a bit more rock and roll than it is glam rock that Kiss kind of were. I, I really do like Strutter. Um, but the answer that I'm going to give now, it, there's a great cover of this. I, I, if you want a more rockish version by a band called Mushroom Head, um, but it's um, crazy by Seal. I absolutely love this song. Um, it starts like you're being smacked in the face by the nineties. <laughs> um, like the the, the 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 tune and the like the the synth and any of that kind of stuff. But then the second he starts singing, and then the chorus is just really catchy, and it's just it's anthemic without being a football anthem or it's it's anthemic without needing to be in a stadium it's just a great song by an artist that probably probably doesn't get the recognition he deserves and ended up you know appearing on step brothers i think it was and probably think of more <laughs> of a bit of a joke now than anything but yeah crazy by seal is is a great song i think I, mean, I, I was sorry, she. I was going to say I, I did think of another seal song, funnily enough, and a killer. I thought it's an absolute mm. belter. Mm. You you kind of you almost expect like where do you go on No Mercy to follow it on like one of them <laughs> No Twenty Eight or something like that. <laughs> yeah, it yeah. definitely does like have its place in time, doesn't it? I think like it it hits you straight away like a bullet that time period. Like it sounds like it, but at the same time, um, it is great. Um, and last but by no means least, only one genre can survive: new metal or new romantic. What are you picking to save as why? Now I'm going to go first, and I, of course, easy peasy, you could guess this. I'm going to go for new metal. New metal, um, you know, Limp Bizkit, Lincoln Park, um, Slipknot weren't new metal, but they get lumped in it. System of a Down weren't new metal, but they get lumped in it as well. But other bands of that ilk, Corn, and then uh, and so on and so forth. For me, it was music that not only defined a generation, as I'm sure new romantic music did as well, but it was the counterculture. It wasn't the popular thing that was going on. And without new metal, you wouldn't have had loads of artists today. Even shit houses like Ed Sheeran 
puts down that he loved like <laughs> new metal and was influenced by that kind of stuff. And it's stuff that stands the test of time. You wouldn't listen to new romantic music when you're in a bad mood to cheer you up. You'd, it would only further your misery. I feel if you listen <laughs> to new romantic music, if you were if you were fed up, new metal's there to raise the blood, uh, raise the heartbeat, and you know get the blood flowing and pumping. And sometimes that's exactly what you need in music. That something that new romantic music doesn't, and it's not even sexy new romantic Eve. It's not like you you can be a top shagger to new romantic Eve. So new metal for me is is the one. Stu. Well, I mean, I, I deliberately put um, a Spanner Ballet song in the group chat the other day and got, they got no response for, for people listening. Just just blatantly ignored. And, <laughs> and it is... I'm, I'm actually really torn with it because you got from, from probably the early age of, I don't know, six or seven to... And the PS2 came out in 2000. So wow. you're talking about kind of like that part of my life, but like the first 16, 17 years until I, until I was about, well, yeah, until I went to uni. That I like that new romantic and all that kind of stuff, as well as indie, was what I listened to all the time. And I've said this story before, but when I had um, my PS2 and I had uh, Smuggler's Run, which is an early Rockstar game. Um, I used to, it was relatively open world, so you're driving around, picking up these parcels and driving them back to wherever, racing them. But the soundtrack was shit. And that same Christmas, I had Gold by Spando Ballet. So I'd be racing around Smuggler's Run, listening to Gold by Spando Ballet on my CD player. And I, I guess no one else in the entire world had that experience. But, <laughs> <laughs> but them and Duran Duran... They're great. New Romantic as a whole is ridiculous. <laughs> um, and so, and New Metal, we wouldn't have a great soundtrack to Transformers, would we? Which is the main wow. problem here. Um, <laughs> so, going against my younger self, and in the 20 odd years after that period, I'm going to have to, I'm gonna have to sacrifice. The uh, the altar of new romantics to the dustbin forever because wow that with, surprises me. There's other pop stuff out there if you want that kind of thing. It's not too far removed from it anyway. Um, Ed Sheeran be one of them. <laughs> funny <laughs> enough, um, it wouldn't be. It didn't influence anything other than to make themselves look like twats for ten years. The clothes were stupid. Whatever, other than a couple of Bond theme tunes and. Childhood memories. New metal's better. So there you go. Interesting. Well, mm. Andy, it's, it's it's a formality, but is it a whitewash? I, I genuinely thought the pressure was going to be on me. Yeah, I did as well. And, and I was going to have to ask you for a reason as to why I should pick new metal. Because um, the answer is new romantic. I'm, I'm sorry, but I've got no <laughs> real affinity to new metal. I like metal and rock and I like rap. But just keep them separate. I don't need it together. I mean, if you take Limp Biscuit out of it, there's very little there that I have any interest in, if I'm being perfectly honest. Mm. Linkin Park did fuck all for me. They were a boy band who just happened to pick up guitars and a drum kit. 
it's, it's, they're just nothing for me, to be perfectly honest. And I say that as a fan of Jay-Z, who obviously did quite a bit of work with them on Hybrid Theory, whatever it was called. But yeah, New Metal, I don't feel has had much of a legacy outside of specifically New Metal music. And the fact that Ed Sheeran says that he likes it makes me hate it a little bit more, <laughs> if I'm perfectly honest. Whereas if you look at something like New Romantic, so yeah, you've got Duran Duran, you've got Spandau Ballet, Ultravox, Soft Cell, who we've mentioned earlier, Depeche Mode, Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark, Human League. We've even got, like, you know, who did we go and see a couple of years ago, Stu? The, the chap from EastEnders, Kemp, who was there. Um, Bow Wow Wow. There's some really good fun nonsense that you can have a really great mad night out on. Like if you think back to Cheeky Monkeys, which used to be an 80s based, well, a new romantic night in Wolverhampton. Grab a granny night on it, let's be honest. It was full of of divorcee night. (laughs) You know what, the, Um, the the worrying thing is though, we're the same age as what we would have thought then were the grab a granny. Yeah, yeah, it's true, yeah. But I feel like my kind of music is generally mostly English or British, should I say. Mm. Uh, and I feel there's more of a through line from New Romantic to what I listen to now, even to your indie stuff now. If you look at even someone like Kasabian, for example, who've got that electro kind of sound to them, I do feel that started in the 80s and with the New Romantics. It's just that they generally dress like twats back then and they're a little bit cooler now. That's mm. the main difference. But sound-wise... That's closer to what I like to listen to. Even if you go even deeper into electro music like Simeon and Justice and that kind of thing, that's more of it. But I just feel that new um, metal is very much, it's just quite insular. There's not much else. But when it comes to America, the best thing I think the Americans have given us, other than Billy Joel's, probably been like pop punk. So you're bowling for mm. soups and you're, you're Blink 182s, which isn't really new metal. So yeah, I, I thought I was going to like. I was going to say, I feel really sorry because I don't have to agree with Stu after his weekend of terrible opinions on football. I didn't want to have to back him up. But he's made it easy for me, so that's fine. Who who else managed to get someone trending on Twitter? See, nearly (laughs) 25,000 impressions that tweet got. Ridiculous, mate, ridiculous. And it's wrong, so... (laughs) Who knew you had so much sway, Stu? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, that is wrapped up the third MusiCast episode here on Cage Fighting. Thank you very, very much for listening. A little bit of admin that you guys need to do for us. If you could please, please, please leave us a review on whichever podcast platform you listen to, that would be much appreciated. And if you could tell a friend about us and get them to add us on the socials at Cage Fighting Pod. That would be massively appreciated um, just to help us grow as a podcast and just get out to as many people as possible so we can embarrass you on a grander stage. That would be <laughs> most appreciated. Again, Cage Fighting Pod on the socials, cagefightingpod at gmail.com for any emails as well. If you'd like to request a question or you'd like us to cover a specific bit of content or even if you'd like us to do a, a picture pod of one of your favourite films, if we get you know ask us nicely you never know we might do it so please get in touch with us and um we will um be happy to oblige but for now Stu, if you'd like to say goodbye this means nothing to me lvl (laughs) (laughs) andy if you'd like to say goodbye Uh, it's been a pleasure thanks a lot for listening 
And from me, Matt Guy, goodbye. And remember, party on, dudes.